Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in Greenville, South Carolina. I am your host, as always, Stan McCune, realtor here in the upstate. And you can find all of my contact information in the show notes. Reach out to me at any time for anything that you need real estate-wise, or if you just want to talk about the show, I'm happy to chat about that as well. Um, and if you appreciate the show, please make sure that you subscribe to it. Uh, you don't want to miss any future episodes. Make sure as well that you uh, download episodes. That's helpful for the Apple and Google algorithm. And uh, if you guys in particular can just take 10 seconds to just leave a review uh, or even just one second to hit five stars on that rating, I would appreciate that. That encourages me to keep going with the show even as I'm crazy busy and barely able to squeeze it into my schedule. So I would appreciate uh, if you guys could do that. Today we're going to be talking about negotiating, but not what we typically discuss when it comes to real estate. Uh, negotiating on price or negotiating on terms, negotiating between buyer and seller. Today we are going to be talking about negotiating with your spouse or your partner or your children. Sometimes there are multiple parties involved in a real estate purchase. Um, mostly, most often, it is the spouse, but sometimes there are other parties. Regardless, there is a negotiation involved that takes place between those different parties. And sometimes, out of all of the negotiations, that can be the hardest one to deal with. That can be the hardest negotiation of all because it's the most personal. Um, and real estate transactions as a whole, I, I, I've mentioned this before, but they are unique in terms of market transactions. You know, when you make other uh, investments and other purchases, it's not as emotional and it's not as personal as a real estate transaction. As real estate, buying and selling, uh, particularly your primary residence, it's very personal. People take it very personally. They they are emotionally invested, you know, in properties where they raised their children or where they had, you know, this memory or that memory. Um, there's all sorts of different things that are wrapped up in there. Um, and as you're moving to the next home and as you're looking to move to the next home, uh, there are emotions that get spilled over into that as well. And oftentimes, I find myself in the middle of debates or disagreements between uh, different parties on the same side. You, again, usually spouses. I'm just going to say, uh, I'm going to say spouses and partners a lot. Just know that I'm not excluding any groups by saying that. I'm just using that uh, as a catch-all for, uh, for whatever groups are involved in these, uh, in these transactions. Um, now, generally, the way I approach this when I'm in the middle of these types of, of negotiations between spouses and partners, um, I, I generally don't try to take sides unless just one party is just way off. And, and we run into this sometimes. Sometimes one party is just like, well, you know, we know that this is going to happen. And it's like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, or, you know, perhaps they're simply like, you know, they're trying to end up in a certain location, a certain house, and the house that they are looking at, it just does not check off the boxes that uh, they agreed that they were going to try to check off. At that point, I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to be like, hey, uh, you know, 
what you guys talked about before, this is not the type of house uh, that that you're pushing for that you guys originally talked about. And so um, I will speak into that at times. But generally, I try to, in these uh, interspousal negotiations, I try to be more of a sounding board. I try to to not make it about myself and my opinions um, because, honestly, I don't know all of the background all of the all of the the backdrop and and everything that causes uh spouses to to disagree and to and to to have to negotiate and to debate with each other there's a lot that happens a lot of conversation that happens that I'm not a part of so I have to navigate that very carefully um so I try to be more of a sounding board and I just try to um amplify the concerns and the thoughts of, of each other, uh, of, of each party, um, try to help them to, to see uh, what each other is saying. And of course, I got a, um, not a, a full degree in it, but my minor in college um, was in counseling so and psychology. So I have a little bit of a background in that. I took a lot of classes uh, on that. So um, I, I feel like I have a little bit that I can bring to the table in terms of helping people work through some of these, uh, some of these situations, some of these uh, sometimes intense discussions that they have over buying and selling a home. And so I want to talk about just a, a handful of, of tips here for how to uh, go through that, how to negotiate with your spouse. I, I'm telling you, I run into this a lot. I, I it, it's very rare that you have a husband and wife team or whatever type of team that is looking to purchase a home that they agree 100% and are just in lockstep on everything. Usually there's going to be some type of, of disagreement and uh, and different things that come up along the way. And it's important to be able to handle those things appropriately. And so um, I think the first main pointer that I would give in this regard is to start by uh, learning to speak each other's languages and thinking about uh, the potential transaction, the potential move, whatever it is, from the other person's point of view. This is really, really crucial. Um, Empathy, it's probably the most important part of this because what oftentimes ends up happening is people get frustrated with each other after, you know, they don't feel like their perspective is being heard. And then as a result, they don't really listen to the other person's perspective. And then it ends up being this vicious cycle of nobody's listening to each other. Um, and part of why it, it's hard to hear what the other person's saying is because the other person is speaking their language, you're speaking your language, and everyone's talking past each other. And uh, you as a communicator... And I, I was uh, reading about this recently um, from, I don't even remember who it was, but the, the, the point of it was that when you're communicating, the onus isn't on you merely to speak truthfully, to speak factually, but the onus is on you as a communicator to speak the language of the person that you're communicating to. And of course, when I say language, I don't mean English or Spanish or whatever, I mean Speak in a way that they understand it. If you're not speaking in a way that they understand it, then what's the point? Why are you even communicating? Is it just to express yourself? 
that's not going to help you in this type of a situation. Maybe there are some situations where it's good to just express yourself. When you're buying a house, you guys need to be uh, communicating in a way that you guys both understand each other. And, and the onus is on you as a communicator to make sure that you're communicating that properly. And if the other par- party doesn't seem to be getting it, that it probably is a two-way street. It's probably both that they need to put more effort in, but it's probably also that that you could put more effort into better communicating. And I'm not just saying this because, oh, I took some classes in college. No, I see this all the time when I'm communicating or, or when I'm showing houses and seeing the communication between different partners. Um, and again, I tread very lightly. I, I don't speak out and say, hey, you're not listening to each other. Uh, not normally, at least. Um because honestly, some of that is not my business. Some of that uh, goes much deeper than the real estate transaction. But um, if you can get out in front of that on the front end, you will help your communication greatly. Not just in the real estate tra- transaction, just in general. Now, generally speaking, one partner is more money-oriented and finances oriented, and one is more lifestyle oriented. Now, there are a lot of exceptions and and a lot of nuances to this, but I'm speaking in general terms. There's generally one person that's kind of like, they are the money person uh, in a, let's just assume, in a partner, spousal type of relationship. And then there's one that is more focused on lifestyle. And okay, what does this mean for our family? And what does this mean for you know, what our everyday life will look like. And it's very easy, particularly um, if that's the dynamic at play between you and your spouse, that you start to speak past each other because you're really coming at things from two very different points of view. And for the more lifestyle-focused person, um, I would say a way to... Here's kind of my advice in terms of, of trying to look at it from the other person's point of view, and trying to speak their language. Um, you need to, to start by getting to the heart of what the money-oriented person is most concerned about. There, there I have seen, you know, in, in my relationship with my wife, I am the more money-oriented person. So um, I see from that perspective uh, more easily. And at the same time, I also realize that there are a lot of pitfalls there. And and sometimes I will see the, the more money-oriented uh, spouse or partner will uh, come to very irrational conclusions. Just because one person is, is the money-focused person does not mean that they are the more rational person. That is a very common misconception. Oftentimes, it's the exact opposite. Oftentimes, the most rational arguments that I hear come from the more lifestyle oriented spouse they're like hey we are we are running out of space here we might uh have some tight finances but our finances aren't as tight as our house that we're living in you know like that makes sense um and so uh that lifestyle focused person they need to get to the heart of what the money oriented person is concerned about they might not be concerned about things that are rational and but maybe they are it's you got to get to the heart of that um is that more financial-oriented person? Um, and, and, and by the way, I'm assuming in this, if there is a negotiation going on between the more lifestyle-focused person and the money-focused person, 
probably the money focused person is objecting to spending money, right? That that's kind of my assumption. Usually that's the dynamic at play. So that's going to kind of be my assumption as we talk about this. Um, <clears throat> but is that person approaching it just from a general feeling of we can't afford more than X amount? We can't afford more than $200,000. We can't afford more than uh, $250,000. Whatever. Whatever number they're, they're throwing out there. Um, are, are they doing that? just off the cuff or is there data behind it how did they come to that conclusion uh maybe they're saying we can't afford more than x amount per month well why is that okay how does that compare to your current financial situation that is an important part if you are in a spousal relationship like that um and you know maybe you don't look at the numbers very much you might need to start acclimating yourself with the numbers. You might need to start understanding some of this data in order to be able to see how it, it fits in with your goals and to better understand what your partner's goals are in terms of, of the finances. Um, and so you need to look at that data and you need to bring some of that data into your communication. You need to, to crunch some numbers. Um, make it a conversation around data rather than feelings. By the way, I already alluded to this, but oftentimes the people that are more money-oriented, it's their argumentation is not based on data. It's actually based more on feelings than on data. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later as well because I've seen this over and over again. Because money seems like it's it's more data-oriented than lifestyle, right? Um, but you can uh, go into that under that assumption uh, but in reality, what you're saying about numbers and about money and about all of this is just strictly based on hearsay and strictly based on what you feel rather than what the reality is. I hear a lot of people that are real money oriented say they don't want to get into more debt. Uh, we, we don't. We, I, it's just it's stressful. I hate it. You're a servant to debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, that there is zero data in there uh, unless you're you can't afford the debt now okay if you can't afford it that's a whole nother story but if historically you could afford your debt and and you have done that uh, over the years and there's no reason to believe that that's going to change no evidence that that's going to change then if you're operating under the assumption that that's going to change you're operating based on feelings less than on data. That's just uh, something to keep in mind. Again, we're gonna we're gonna circle back to some of that uh, in a few minutes here. Um, now, if the more money oriented person has already crunched the numbers and has said that that the monthly payment can't be more than whatever a thousand hours or fifteen hundred a month, whatever the case may be, um, or your down payment can't be more than X amount, you know. 10,000, 25,000, 50,000, whatever. Um, you need to, to look at those numbers yourself. Get a second set of eyes on those numbers um, because for two reasons. First off, the spouse may not be correct. They, they may be making poor assumptions. Most of us are not accountants. Um, and, and so, you know, you get, um, you know, in these families, uh, someone has to ultimately look over the finances, but they might not be very good at it. 
Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's better to have two sets of eyes on something than, than just one. So you may look at it if you're the more uh, lifestyle-focused spouse and, and you don't really look at the, at the finances very much. You may find that when you look at the finances, there are some things that don't make sense. And that could be uh, a helpful thing to do and a helpful conversation. But then uh, if the spouse, if you look at it and then the spouse is correct, well, now you understand where they're coming from. So there's really, it's really a no-lose situation for you. You need to be, uh, in order to communicate with that more money-oriented person, you need to be in the books, so to speak. You need to be aware of, of the money uh, in order to be able to have a conversation with them about money. Um, and and hopefully, if you find that they uh, are making some assumptions that aren't correct or really aren't logical, if you actually uh, have data to support what you're saying, if you can actually speak from an, the actual standpoint of the finances, um, hopefully then you can uh, work something out. Another way to approach this as well, um, you know, s- sometimes there's hesitancy about, you know, uh, well, I, we're we're buying a lot of house. This is more house than I plan to. Uh, what's this going to mean for the future? It can be helpful to look at uh, data on on the housing market and on appreciation and what type of investment your next home could be. Um, a money focused person can very well, uh, very frequently, will have a scarcity mindset and not realize that in most areas, at at the very least, in the upstate, in most areas their home values are going to dramatically outpace inflation. And they might be concerned about, you know, oh man, we're paying all this interest and in, in, in all this, and, you know, where's all this money going towards? Um, they might not realize that uh, purchasing the next home, it actually may be a tremendous investment for them. I'm not going to go into the saying that every single home that you purchase is a great investment. Uh, that's some of the value a realtor provides, I can speak into that. But uh, generally speaking in the upstate, our home values here appreciate at a very good clip. And and that's for a variety of reasons that we've discussed in the past. But it, it can be helpful to approach it from that angle with that more money-oriented person. Make sure that they understand the big picture. It's not just about right now, right here, right now, but the long-term. What does the long-term mean? Particularly if you're coming from renting. If you've been renting... Um, and it, in this market in, in Greenville, um, it costs a lot more to rent than it does to buy. It just does. Um, at some point, perhaps that will balance out, but that's been a long standing thing for, for quite some time. Um, and so it, it there are a few different ways that you can approach it rationally with that more finance oriented person. Uh, by the way, it might also be worth looking at, okay, here's how home prices are going up in value. What does this mean if you're not willing to buy now? What does this mean, you know, let's say that you're like, well, we, we just need to wait a few more years. Well, will your money that you have and will your salary uh, increase at the level that home values are increasing? That's another way to look at it. These are the types of things that um, if you can bring data to the conversation, you can help to really speak into the finances of of the uh, of what's being discussed and of that part of the negotiation. Now, for the more money focused person, as you're trying to speak 
the language of the uh, lifestyle-oriented, more lifestyle-oriented spouse. Try to get to the heart of those lifestyle arguments that your partner is making and why those things do or don't resonate with you. And, and, and try to process that on your own before you try to process that to your, your partner. Um, try to think through, why, why is it that this doesn't resonate with me? Why is it that I don't want to spend the money for that? Um, particularly if you know that technically you can afford it, um, but you're concerned to afford it. Are you living out of fear, for instance? Well, why are you living out of fear? Is that rational fear, or is that perhaps irrational? Maybe having a nice kitchen isn't so important to you, but that's perhaps because you don't spend much time in the kitchen. Maybe your spouse does. Uh, Maybe you don't feel like you're running out of space in your house. You're comfortable with the size of your house. Um, But that might be because you grew up in a smaller home. Or that might just be because you're in a routine and, and you are really comfortable in your routine right now. Once you get to the heart of, of some of that as a, a more money-focused person, perhaps you can find points of compromise. Maybe the issue isn't so much that you don't agree on, on what you guys actually need, but that you simply need more time to save more money. And of course, again, it's very important that you provide that the data, that you look at the data and that you have something supporting the claims that you're making as a money-focused person. Because, again, that lifestyle-oriented person, they may have very rational arguments. And if you just respond to those with feelings, I just don't feel like we can afford this. Um, that might not be the wording that you use, but that might be functionally what you're saying if you just say, oh, we can't afford more than $800 a month. Why? That's just not, we just can't afford more than that. Like, what if I lose my job? You know, what if what if this happens? What if that happens? Well, those are feeling-oriented arguments. Um, that's not based on data. And, and again, I, I strongly believe that bringing data in these situations, having actual numbers and actual things to look at uh, to compare and contrast, that is what is necessary to get through these types of negotiations. Um, Maybe the issue is that you are more focused on your lifestyle than your spouse's lifestyle. Ooh, I see this a lot. I see this a whole lot. Um, A very common one is, um, you know, the more money-oriented spouse typically is the quote-unquote breadwinner. And the, the breadwinner, he or she, um, probably has to commute to work every day. And, uh, or, you know, I also see instances where, where that person takes the kids to school every day. And you may find yourself in a, in a situation where you don't want to spend more time on the road and so you end up selecting a very narrow geographic area because you're like, I, you know, I don't want to spend an extra 20 minutes in my car every day. But because of doing that, you're actually preventing your spouse who lives in the house all day, maybe a stay-at-home spouse, they may live in the house basically all day. And you are preventing them from having an entire day being upgraded because you don't want to downgrade 20 minutes of your day. That is a very, very common 
uh, dynamic that I find. And so it's very important that you look at all of that and understand all of that and perhaps be willing to show some good faith to your spouse that's like, hey, here is the money situation, okay? Here's the data. Here's what we can afford. Maybe we can't get everything that we want for this, but I'm willing to show some good faith and surrender some of what I would prefer in order for you to get some of what you need and some of what you would prefer. That's a great way to uh, to diffuse the situation and to make progress in some of these negotiations. Don't just be self-absorbed or self-focused but look at it from their perspective and try to move in their direction. Um, all right, so that was all about speaking the same language. That was I knew that was going to be the longest one that we talked about. Um, there's a few more here that I want to hit on quickly. Be real about where the market is. Be real about where the market is. Now, um, this cuts in a lot of different ways, and I'm not even going to touch on on all uh, that it cuts, you know, all the different directions that it cuts. I'm not going to touch on all of them. Um, but the first question is, can you afford what you want? And and again, be real about this. Um, do you even know what you can afford or are you assuming it? Are you just taking a, a dart and throwing it on a board of prices and saying, mm, we can afford $1,000 a month? So, you know, what houses uh, are out there that would be, you know, our mortgage payment would be less than $1,000 per month? Where did you come up with that number? Is that, um, is that really the, the, the most that you can afford? Maybe that's more than you can afford. You've got to make sure that, that, the, that the number that you set as your guideline um, because that's very, very important. Once you set that, it's hard to, it's hard to pivot from that. Um, you need to make sure that, that that number actually makes sense. Maybe you're thinking, oh, we can't even get, you know, we can, in theory, afford, you know, $2,000 a month. I mean, really easily, $2,500 a month. But I, there's no way we'll get pre-approved for that. Um, okay, let's talk to a lender. You're, uh, you might find that you actually definitely can afford more than that. And so that's an important part of the consideration as well. Uh, making sure that that you actually know what you can afford on multiple levels, on the level of what your income and expenses are, on the level of what a lender will actually give you. And you don't want to overshoot it. You don't want to undershoot it. Figure out what the actual number is. And once you've analyzed those numbers um, and you know exactly what you can or can't afford, um, then you can start looking at homes in your budget. Now you actually have a baseline. Now you actually know where to begin and you can be real about it. You don't just have to make assumptions. Assumptions, that is, again, a big thing that I see in these negotiations between spouses that happen is there are all sorts of assumptions that are being tossed around. Let's try to eliminate those assumptions and then you can actually uh, have a, a realistic conversation. Um, now, once you look at homes in your budget, if they aren't what you want, then you have to either adjust your criteria in some way and, and again, be real. Say, you know what? We can't afford what we want right now. Maybe this is going to be a stopgap home um, for a few years while we save up money, while I hopefully get some raises and then can afford more house in the future, and then we'll just move in a few years from now. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's the case. Or maybe you just need to, to, to back out for a little bit and put a plan in place 
for affording a more expensive home. It's really important that this is all planned out because if you just say, you know what, we just can't afford a house right now. We're just going to have to to back out and just enter the market another time. Um, I've got bad news for you. The market is not going to uh, it, it's not going to depreciate in value. We're not going to see homes. It's very unlikely, very, very, very unlikely that homes are going to go down in value anytime soon. And so if you back out of the market and then assume that you can enter back in the market in two years, you might find homes have gone up 20% in value in the areas that you're looking for, uh, for houses in. You might find that they're now 20% more expensive. Well, do you have 20% more money? Have you, Has your salary gone up by 20% in two years? It probably hasn't. Uh, for a lot of people, it hasn't and, and, and won't. And so um, be very careful before making an emotional decision of, oh, we, we just can't afford it. Um, that doesn't mean... There's kind of an assumption. We can't afford it now, but we will in the future. And, and that's a very, very big assumption. And that's an assumption that may not be rooted in reality. You have to be real about the market. Um, but also, there's an aspect of being real about the market. And I see this a lot. I can't tell you how often I see this, um, particularly with people that you know, work more blue-collar jobs and, um, and, and come from backgrounds that, that didn't have as much money. Um, but they will operate under kind of more of a doomsday perspective, constantly coming at things from the standpoint of, and maybe they don't even realize this, but essentially they're coming from the standpoint of, well, what if the market crashes tomorrow? Or what if my home starts losing value? Again, we just talked about uh, from an outsider perspective, the unlikelihood of homes depreciating. But what about your house? What's the likelihood of your house depreciating, losing value? Um, let me start with this. It's not likely. It's not likely. And this is also a way that we cannot be real about the market. Um, and, and by the way, it's a perspective that very frequently irritates spouses because they're like, why are we operating under this assumption, this doomsday scenario? Because we don't use this logic in other parts of our lives. Do you have a homestead to produce food in case the uh, economy goes into global depression and, and nobody has food? Or maybe, you know, uh, like the Interstellar movie, we've got this, uh, you know, blight taking over the world, and now we're having to move to another planet because we've depleted our planet of resources. Do you operate under that assumption? That could happen. It could happen. Why don't we operate under those assumptions? Do you have a stockpile of gold in case uh, the U.S. dollar completely loses all of its buying power? Well, I I have to admit, I do know a person or two that that has that. But by and large... The average person doesn't have that. The people that I'm hearing talking about, you know, well, what if the market crashes? What if, you know, what if my house loses value right after I purchase it? Um, these people don't have gold in stockpiles in their houses. Let me tell you. I, I can assure you of that. Um, do, you, do you have a bunker uh, prepared for a nuclear apocalypse? No. Why? Why, why don't you have a bunker prepared for, for nuclear fallout? Is it because... Uh, the possibility of a nuclear apocalypse is really low. I would argue that the possibility for a nuclear apocalypse is really high. There's like a bunch of countries just sitting on nukes that could could blow our, our world into oblivion. Um, what is the likelihood that one of those countries decides to pull the trigger at some point? I'd say it's a decent 
decent possibility. But we don't live with bunkers, uh, you know, anymore. Now, now back in you know in the Cold War um, era, that was people actually did that. Um, but I would say that there's more likelihood of of something like that happening now than even back in the Cold War. But but we don't live with bunkers. So um, <laughs> why why is it? Why is it that we don't do these things? It's because we look at history and we see those events are very unlikely. We see that famines are unlikely, so we don't stockpile food. We see that global depressions are unlikely. We see uh, that uh, hyperinflation that causes the U.S. dollar to completely lose all of its value, um, that that type of thing... Uh, doesn't have a whole lot of historical precedent. It does have some. It doesn't have a lot of historical precedent. Um, there's Yes, nukes have been used before, but it hasn't been used very often. So we operate under the assumption that it's not likely to happen in the future. Well, guess what? A housing market crash, and even more so, a housing market crash that causes homes in the upstate to permanently lose value for a long time is very, very unlikely. Very unlikely. The, the, the most recent time that we had this happen was in 2008. Everyone knows about this. This is why people have it in their minds that it's going to happen again. Um, even when that happened in 2008, homes in the upstate on a meta level more or less flatlined in value. They did not lose value and they started picking up value very quickly. And that was a housing market crash. That was a global recession that, that happened in uh, primarily in large parts. Um, and I'm, I'm no economist, but what I understand is that a lot of it happened because of the housing market. The housing market was the first domino to fall that caused the, the, the uh, global economy to go into recession. Um, so where is the data? Where is the data that says that this is going to happen again, that it's very likely to happen again in the near future. There's not much data. So if you're basing your doomsday scenario uh, assumptions off of actual data, you're not. (laughs) You're not being real. You're not being real about the market if you're going in with this doomsday scenario uh, type of thinking. Uh, now it's good to have contingency plans. It's great to have contingency plans, um, but those contingency plans should look at things from a realistic perspective. Um, last but not least, make sure you're in agreement with each other, you and your spouse, on your long-term housing goals. Is the next home a home for a few years, or is it for the long term? Is this where we're going to retire? Is this where we're going to raise our kids? Make sure that you're in agreement over that because that impacts a whole lot of things. Um, if it is long-term, think reasonably about, about what your family will be like in a few years and what you can afford. All right, you, you need to not just be looking at the here and now. You need to be looking in the future and not just looking in the future again from that doomsday scenario of what if I lose a job? What if this happens? What if that happens? Um, you just that's not a way to uh, to plan that, and that's really not planning at all. That's that's speculating. It's not even educated speculation. I don't know how many times I want to say this, but I want to say this a lot. You cannot eliminate risk 
from future planning. You can't. You cannot plan risk out of your 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 decisions for your family. You know, I, I see some clients that try to do this by trying to get rid of as much debt as possible because to them, debt is risk. Listen, there's a whole lot of other risks out there besides debt. You can't eliminate all of those things. And um, whomever is the more risk-averse person between the two of you needs to try to focus more on preparing for the likely scenarios while also ensuring that you don't buy more house than you can afford. Um, So don't look at the unlikely scenarios and plan based on that. Look at the likely scenarios. But also, you know, maybe you can afford a $700,000 house, but that would be the absolute top end of what you can afford using multiple metrics. Um, so, so back off a little bit. You don't, you don't need to buy the absolute top of what you can afford. Back off a little bit and make sure that, that you uh, are doing, uh, exercising wisdom in terms of uh, your decision making. And the more risk tolerant person needs to see the value in having contingency plans and be willing to make personal sacrifices as a show of good faith uh, while also looking at the housing data out there to make reasonable conclusions from it uh, in terms of you know where the market is going and how that might impact you and your family. And, and so this is where uh, you, you both have to look at it from each other's perspectives and make sure that you, uh, that you do accomplish what you're looking to do lifestyle-wise while also not buying way more house than you can afford. Um, and and also not assuming that you won't be able to afford it in the future. You can't operate under the assumption that you won't be able to afford something in the future if you can afford it now. Now, where people get in trouble is when they buy more house than they can afford now under the assumption that they will be able to afford it in the future. That, I highly recommend you don't do that. That's what happened in, 2000, in the years leading up to 2008. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but but don't operate under the assumption that you won't be able to afford uh, a house in the future that you can now. That is not a reasonable way to go about it. In the end, in this uh, spousal partner negotiation, you have to respect and trust each other even in your disagreement. Sometimes uh, this negotiation involves looking at multiple homes. I see this a lot. That you know, sometimes partners they they don't even fully understand what they agree or disagree on, and what you know the terms, quote unquote, of their negotiation are going to be until they start looking at homes, and then they start to understand it because that's a real thing in front of them. They can actually see what the home looks like, what homes in their quote unquote budget are, and and now they they're actually working through. Okay, this is what we want. This is what we need. This is what we can afford. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I, I have some people sometimes that apologize, like, I'm, we're so sorry that, that, you know, we're trying to, it's taken us a while to figure out what we want, what we need, and there's no need to apologize for that. This is a part of the process. You have to start looking at homes to even uh, find where that baseline is for what you guys want. Um, and as I said before, me as a realtor, I, I just try to be a soundboard, and I try to help People in these, uh, you know, when spouses are apart on what they're looking for and what they're wanting to do, I try to be a soundboard just to help them to better understand each other and hopefully come closer together 
uh, in terms of understanding each other and in terms of their goals. And then as we start to look at more houses and as I start to understand the, the spousal dynamics at play, maybe at that point I can become a little bit more bold in terms of saying, I don't think that this really accomplishes what this spouse wants or, or this doesn't look like the type of house that you would want or this, you know, it, I don't know that this is going to fit into your long-term goals. Um, I don't, I'm very careful with how I word that because I don't ever want to be the decision maker for my clients. I want, at the end of the day, they have to make the decision one way or the other. Um, but I try to to help be a, a, an advocate for both of them. Or, you know, there might be more, an advocate for all of them um, to make sure that everyone at the end is is happy and pleased and satisfied with how it all worked out and that nobody is angry at each other. That's the main thing I don't want. I don't want anyone to to be angry, you know, to leave a showing frustrated and angry that their spouse, their partner wasn't listening to them. We don't want that. Uh, and so I tried to help as much as I can without getting too much into the weeds on the personal dynamics at play. That's what I do as a realtor. Um, and, and that is some things to think about if you are in the process of negotiating things with your spouse, with your partner, uh, in terms of looking to move, or maybe just in general, maybe this was helpful on a more general plane. I don't know. You guys can, uh, let me know. The best way to let me know is by leaving some feedback, rating, review, et cetera, on the show. If you don't have my contact information, that's in the show notes. I appreciate you guys listening and until next time, stay safe and negotiate fair with each other.